are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. All right, Job chapter 2. Last week I uh, raised a question uh, that tonight we're going to continue to answer. It's really uh, This is kind of part two of last week's sermon, simply because a lot of the text is very, very similar with last week's uh, text. Uh, We didn't have time to cover all of it. The question I raised last week uh, is a question I don't really like, but I'm forced to ask it. Uh, It was a question a commentator asked me uh, through my study. What is more important, God's glory or your comfort? What is more important, God's glory or your comfort? I, uh, I kind of talked to you how there's, there's some aspect of the conversation of like God's glory that can be a little bit confusing for me because uh, I'm like, what is that? What does that smell like? What does that taste like? How do I know it when I see it? Uh, I have to recognize I'd probably be scared if I ever really did see it. I think you would be too. Uh, I think if we asked Moses and even the disciples, I think we would be terrified to see the glory of God. So there's a real sense to which I'm not really interested in seeing the glory of God uh, because that sounds very dangerous. But at the same time, I recognize that, um, yeah, it's a, it's a helpful question when thinking about God's ultimate purpose, what he delights to do, and that is to shine forth his self in particular ways. So I kind of reframed that question in a couple ways that were uh, a little bit more accessible to me and felt a little bit more close to home. Uh, So I was asking questions. I like a good old would you rather. I was asking questions like this. Would you rather live forever with a perfect life without God? So think back to Job's original life. Would you rather have Job's perfect life forever without God or have a suffering life forever with God? Would you rather have Job's first life apart from God, or would you rather have Job's second life forever with God? And when I put it like that, which I think it's the same question, okay, I think it's the same question. When I put it like that, I have to bow out a little bit because I have to recognize I'm not sure I'm equipped to truly answer that question. Um, Remember the first week we talked, we talked about how Job is really not for armchair theologians. That is, it's not for this kind of think tank theologian who's thinking things through theoretically or thinking things through uh, at a classroom level or just trying to think through a theology of suffering with nice clean edges and boxes. This is not that kind of book. The book of Job is not reserved for armchair theologians. The book of Job is reserved for wheelchair theologians. Those who are stuck 
in suffering, those who are going through it, those who have questions, thoughts, maybe expletives for God. We have a no real ability to think things through cleanly or um, even um, with, with theory because we feel it. We live in it. It's our life. It's our experience. And so when I ask you the question, what would you rather have, the perfect life apart from God or a suffering life with God, it's kind of hard because like, we have no way of knowing what that feels like or look like, looks like. Job is the extreme case. So he's not the norm for the Christian life. And to that, we all say, praise God. I can safely say, I think, that none of you will ever suffer like Job suffered. I think that's true. Don't hold me to that. But I'm pretty sure that that's true. So we'll never necessarily know what it looks like or feels like to lose everything and still only have Jesus. In other words, I think we will always have our idols present, propping us up somehow in some way. Now, yes, Jesus does like to knock out the feet from underneath a lot of our idols, which is why we have anxiety and we suffer. And it feels like we're losing everything because we're depending so much on those idols to be what only Jesus could be for us. So it feels like Job even though it doesn't really always look like Job. This week's text, which is very similar to last week's, probes this question just a little bit deeper. Painfully so. The question of, is God's glory more important than your comfort, doesn't just get asked, like last week, in relation to your stuff going to move a little bit deeper. Is God's glory more important than your comfort gets asked in this text about in relation to your life or you? Is God more important than you? Than your existence, than your personhood? Are you okay with God being God and the only thing you have left is just a breath? Is that okay? What if God goes after the sacred inner space of your soul? Is God more important than the comforts of your soul? What if God goes after your sense of right and wrong? What if God decides to play around with your feeling of peace with him? What if God decides to make it feel like he's mad at you? Is that okay? You still want life like that with God? Of course, to answer this question, we're still at the same place. There's no way for us to experience that and feel that and know that. And there's a great sense of comfort and peace and hope that we can have in that question because we know the end of the story, especially as believers, right? There is only one person who suffered and embraced the anger of God on our behalf for our sin. And praise God, that will never be you because of Jesus. So we don't, we don't have to wheelchair theologian that out. Praise God. And because here a little bit, we do a little bit of armchair theology, we get to rest in the reality that what Job suffered with, and more importantly, what Jesus suffered with won't be our reality, yet you will be forced to answer the same question. Does that make sense?
You will be forced to think through and go through the same motions that Job and Jesus did, even though it might not look like what they suffered with. It'll feel like it, for sure. To answer this question, there will be more questions regarding how Satan works and what God really wants or what God really thinks is fair, and we will try to answer some more of those as we go along. All right, That's part of the reason I wanted to split it up. Uh, I actually thought about just doing just presenting the whole text as like sermon and then doing a whole question uh, question and answer kind of thing back and forth. But I was like, nah, I still think we need this idea of sermon. So I decided to chop it up. So I'm going to try to answer more of your questions about how God governs the world through evil. Okay, And I realize I'm not going to be able to do a sufficient job. So I'll offer you the same thing I offered you last week. If you have thoughts, questions, please reach out. I'm, I'm a happy person to take your questions and think it through with you. I probably will say I don't know because there's a lot of that in Job. All right. Cool thing is the outline is really simple. Oops, forgot about that. All right, you get both of them right out of the gate. There you go. You get the whole outline and an extra parentheses ending. Great work out of me. But it's also, in theory, the exact same outline as last week because – it's almost the exact same text. There's a couple differences, all right? Job chapter 2, read with me verse 1 through 10. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome, loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is the word of God for us today. This is the second test. And again, as I was probably reading it, you probably thought I was just uh, misguided on the text that I was reading. It is a lot of word for word from last week. Almost seems oddly repetitive. Uh, it almost seems like maybe God is on Groundhog Day, if you've ever seen that movie. Um, Almost seems like there's a Groundhog Day experience there, but this is a totally different situation, uh, yet with a lot of similarities. So this is test number two. Test number two. 
We talked last week how this is really a cosmic test. This really isn't about Job or Satan or God or Job. Really, this is a uh, cosmic kind of challenge between God and Satan. Satan, or God lays out a couple of truths about who he is and what he likes to do, and Satan basically challenges God with uh, a couple thoughts of his own. Uh, God says, have you ever considered my servant Job? It's great. I have wonderful people out there who love me and serve me. And Satan says, I don't think so, God. In fact, I, I challenge you. I think if you take away these people's stuff, they'll stop worshiping you. I think they only love you because of the stuff you give them. And God takes on this kind of challenge, this kind of theoretical question. Again, I don't think this is as much about can Job handle the pietist pressure of righteousness. I think this is more, is God worthy to be praised when everything else is taken away? That's originally Satan's accusation or temptation or question. And God says, all right, let's see how this plays out. Let's prove this on the, on the field of battle here. Have you ever thought about my servant Job? And it's God himself who tips off Job. And again, there was another day, much like the other day, right? Just kind of ordinary, common day. And here comes Satan back into the throne room of God. And the Lord asks Satan two questions. Really, I think these two questions demonstrate the reality that God is very much in control. Very much in control. It almost seems as if God has like forgotten he like woke up from his nap and kind of like forgot, oh yeah, these things kind of just happened. Or, oh yeah, Satan was out and about today doing his work. So he has a question, from where have you come? And Satan's happy to engage while well, coming to and fro on the earth. Well, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns from evil? And here's where it shows you that God very much is in control He understands the heart of Job and recognizes he still holds fast his integrity. Almost like a little jab at Satan. Hey, how did that first go around go? I thought you said that they would stop following me or worshiping me if you took everything away. How does that go? I see he still has his integrity. Are you sure you want to keep going? Satan, not in control, doubles down. And delights to keep going. He'll do this, but God shows us a little window into the heart of Satan here. At the very end of verse 3, God makes this little accusation back at Satan. You incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. We know from last week that Satan is a liar. He's also a truther. He's a really good truther. And that he's an an accuser. He tells the truth. A lot of times we think that Satan only tells lies. Oh, my friend, he delights to tell the truth. He uses the truth, though, against you because ultimately he's a liar, he's an accuser, but he also is a destroyer. And God shows us the true motivation. What is Satan up to? What is he doing when he's walking to and fro around the earth? This is what 1 Peter says, that our enemy or our adversary is roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour. I think a lot of times in our mythological or caricaturization of Satan, we like to just think that he's out there just kind of playing tricks on people, probably much like I would if I had superpowers, where I'm just like playing little pranks and doing little things to like trip people up, like like the football game last night, right? I would just like 
as like the kick goes up to beat Alabama, I would just cause this little wind to just come and just blow the ball, and everyone's like, what just happened? And I'm like laughing hysterically. A lot of times we can think that that's kind of what Satan's there. He's just a he's just a wily trickster, right? He just likes to, you know, every once in a while he tells a little fib and gets around, but most of all he's a prankster. God gives us no such illusions about what Satan is truly after with Job. If I can say it this way, God sovereignly reads the heart of Satan. And by the way, he's okay. Remember from last week, there are no rival powers here. There is no good versus evil duking it out in heaven. There is good and evil serves underneath the good. God in full control recognizes Satan's true motivation here. He just wants to destroy. He's literally out for blood. We might think that Satan has crafty tactics to kind of prove a point. In reality, Satan just hates righteous people. He hates righteousness because it flows from God and who he is, and he hates God. He would love for God to be dead. And so he would love for you to be dead, and he is out to destroy it also shows us the lack of true, any sort of empathy or sympathy that Satan's dealing with. You incited me against him to destroy him without any sort of reason. There is zero justification for what Satan goes about and does. There is zero grounds for any sort of rightness or goodness that Satan has in what he's doing. Satan answered the Lord Again, happy to engage in what Jesus already knows is a losing battle. Satan answered the Lord, Yahweh, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. It is very difficult to translate that idea, skin for skin. I, I, to be honest, that little, that little explanation, skin for skin, I really don't know, and a lot of people don't know. I've read like a bunch of things on it. And it's like, that sounds wacky, that sounds wackier, that sounds the least wacky, but okay. I think basically the author of Job here repeats the line here or explains at least what is going on there in, in Hebrew. Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Man, you and I, we will give anything in order to protect himself. This is kind of like survival of the fittest. We will do whatever we can for self-protection. I think is what Satan is is going there. So when God is uh, or Satan is is talking to God uh, to Satan about, hey, I think you should go after Job again. Satan recognizes this reality of like man will do anything for self-preservation. So take away his ability to be self-preserved. Then then we'll be cooking with butter. He'll deny you. He'll curse you. Put the the only thing to put in him is breath in his lungs, and I promise you. He'll curse you. He's not wrong, is he? We will do just about anything for self-preservation. I don't have to go too far. This happens chronically in my heart when I feel like some part of me or some part of my person or some part of my identity or some part of whatever I've built up and established begins to crumble or be taken away how quickly I go into self-preservation mode with my defenses, with my excuses, with my ability to compare and squirt around the reality, everything I can do to preserve myself. 
I, I don't know if I could ever truly just be okay with just breath existing in my lungs without somehow Hunter being able to show his face somehow with some measure of glory attached to it. To just kind of be hunterless person is almost impossible to even imagine for me. This is exactly what Satan recognizes when he says, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. God takes the challenge. Which again, I've been trying to tell us all along, God is, God's okay. He's all right. He knows what he's doing. It's going to be fine. He's, he's in control of all of this. Uh, the, the, the evil here, which is unimaginable kind of evil, serves underneath the good. God is happy to go toe-to-toe with Satan and go as far as Satan wants to challenge him. Because in one sense, God is out to prove his glory. He's out to prove, I am worthy to be praised. You watch. You'll see it. And what seems to be this kind of like amazingly uh, um, this kind of selfish desire might just be the one thing that transforms the world might just be the one thing that gives life. What might be the one thing that we all delight to crave in. An identity outside of us. Something that actually saves us from us. Oh, how glorious it would be to be free from the burden of self-preservation. Would it not be glorious to be free from that? And maybe, just maybe, finding our life and our identity in God, finding our soul, everything in God and his glory, maybe, maybe that's it. And God is out to prove that to Job, to us, and it's something that Jesus already knows and is willing to submit himself to for our sake. We see this test above, but now it comes below, the test below. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord in verse 7 and struck Job with loathsome, that is a hard word, loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. That is to say that there was no part of his body that wasn't afflicted. They speculate as to exactly what kind of sickness. Um, leprosy would probably be the most go-to answer, uh, and I'm, I'm fine with that. That's, that's fine. It almost doesn't matter what kind of affliction it is. It was enough for Job to actually feel like he himself was being a kind of curse Not just a curse to himself, but a curse to humanity. Verse 8, he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. It's not very well explained here. Um, It would have have been understood that Job probably would have found himself to be unclean, an outcast of society at this point. Even the idea of sitting in the ashes, they had designated spots for lepers and people who were unclean or at least unhealthy. We would know this as confinement, solitary confinement or uh, quarantine, right? People who were quarantined. And most of the lepers, especially as uh, the rest of scripture goes forward, most of those lepers would actually sit outside of the city uh, in the dump heap, essentially in the ashes, sit in the ashes. Uh, This is a little bit of a it's hard to know if this is exactly what the author or maybe even the Spirit of God had in mind. 
But I personally, as somebody who sees Job as a type of Christ, a reflection of uh, how Christ would suffer for us, I can't help but look at this imagery here and see Job sitting as one unclean outside the camp. And actually, Jesus would take up this phrase of sitting in the ashes as a way to explain Gehenna or hell. Not Gehenna. Not Gehenna. Gehenna. Hell. Right? Jesus would talk about those who sit outside the camp or are crucified outside the camp are going to hell, going to the grave. Which, why, which is why it was so significant, even uh, prophecy fulfilling that Jesus was crucified outside the camp. Jesus was crucified sitting on the ashes. And here we see Job, the penultimate sufferer or the Christ-like sufferer in hell. With nothing else. Job would have seen himself, at least in some ways, as experiencing the curse of God, which is why, let's do a little bit of criticism for Job's wife, but then also let's back it up just a little bit, all right? She also would have seen Job suffering like this and had a natural concurring thought that he's under a curse. God is cursing him. Why else would he be here? Why else would he be sitting in this place? So it, though for us, as we read it, it seems very harsh that his wife would come and say, curse God and die, you are under a curse. Curse him back. What's it going to cost you? It's not going to cost you anything to curse him back and just get it over with. End it all. Why are you belaboring this point? He wants you dead. End it. it sounds completely harsh to us, but from Job's perspective, he, he would have heard it. He would have at least entertained it as like, I, I know how this looks. I understand what you're saying. And she wouldn't have been, at least humanly speaking, that far off. In fact, she probably even saw something a little bit more uh, significant than probably we would at this point. His wife asked a stunning question, though, in verse 9. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Augustine's basically called her Satan's tool. Satan's tool. Of course, this is Satan's question. Will he abandon his integrity? Will, will he admit something that deep down inside he knows? The good old test question of, is life worth living if you're an eternal sufferer with God versus a perfect life liver Without him, this test question is now being put to the test, and Satan's tool, Job's wife, comes up and asks to his face, will you go against your integrity? You know the right answer. You know the test question answer. But will you go against that and do what you, you want to do? And again, I, I say that you can hardly put yourself in his shoes. It's almost impossible. And you can also rest in the fact that I don't think God is asking you to do it in this way. I think he's asking you to do it related to your own idols, to your own suffering and what God is leading you through. But in this ultimate sense, this question is absolutely spot on. Also remember, this is pretty cool, this was Job's concern for his kids. Job now finds himself in this temptation spot that he feared would happen to his kids. Remember, he thought that his kids might curse God. 
They might sin and they might curse God. That was Job's greatest fear. And now he himself is being tempted with the very same thing. It's funny that this is Job's wife, her only appearance. It's kind of sad. Seems like she was probably a great lady before this, right? She had a great family, right? She probably like, you know, the, the left hand of Job, whatever Job was doing with his right hand, like there's got to be a yin into the yang. I, I mean, I know this to be true experientially. Job was a great dude, great family guy, great entrepreneur. There's probably a great woman behind him, no doubt. But man, this feels weird that this is her only cameo. We should probably give her a little bit of a break. But at the same time, I think it does help us to see that Satan does not need any helpers, does he? We would do well to consider the reality that we have no idea what God is doing behind the curtain. What to us might look like God enacting judgment might be the greatest demonstration of mercy to that person. And we would do well to shut our mouths at that moment and try to explain God. As if God could be explained, as if he could be bottled up, right? I think probably if anybody had God able to be to be explained, Satan would probably be the best bet, right? Seeing he's seen God, he knows God, he's been with him. Okay? So we should probably do less than that regarding our own activity and try to explain God to a sufferer. Might it just be best that we just hang out with them? and recognize our own pain and suffering along with them. Job did say to her, this is a good little husband work here. Again, Job is just a rock star in my book, but here we go. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Notice he didn't call her a fool. Wise move. Even wiser, he didn't say, calm down. Calm down. He says, there are, there are foolish ladies out there who speak a lot of foolishness. You sound like one of them right now. I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying sometimes the words you use just sounds like those ladies out there. It's just what it feels like to me at this moment. It's a good, it's a good, good little move there by Job. I'm just kidding. I don't really know if that's if he's really, really concerned about his marriage relationship at this point. But then we do see this point here that he does make, which is very telling about the question that he is asked. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? What's missing is that little phrase, from God. But I think it's there. Remember last week I said it, it is so hard for us to think of evil as anything else but just pure bad. We have no way of comprehending this reality that good is the ultimate sovereign and evil finds its place underneath it. They're not rivals. They're not head-to-head competition. Good rules and reigns because God rules and reigns. Love wins because God wins. Evil finds its business underneath it. And so this is Job's understanding. And so he asks the question, and again, missing phrase, this idea from God. Shall we receive good from God? 
And shall we not receive evil? And I don't know. I, 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 it's hard to say because I don't want to, on one hand, blame God and say God is responsible for evil. I, certainly we have other biblical uh, interpretation that says he's not. He's not the orig- originator of evil. But we can also say that God in his good sovereignty allows evil to exist and uses evil in a way that highlights the splendor of his goodness in ways that I cannot explain. And I dare not try. And so I say that we can trust this God. And you say, like, why would I trust this God? Because ultimately this person, this God, would put himself to the test. This is not a question that you and I would answer. Ultimately, this is not a question merely that Job would answer, though I think he does answer it. I think Jesus answers this question. Job had his life spared. So there's a real sense to which Job will never know what it's like to even give up his breath and know that God is still worth it. But there is one who does know that, who did give up his breath, gave up everything, Philippians 2, gave up everything, and then allowed the breath of his lungs to flow out of his mouth and says, In my into your hands I commit my spirit. Knowing that life with God is better than his comfort, even if that meant no more breath and lungs. It's amazing to consider that this is the thing that God is working to prove for you and for me. There is no ultimate evil. And because of Jesus regarding Satan and his accusations, There is no ultimate accusation. And this is what Job is trying to say. I know this looks like I am being cursed, but I know that in Jesus there is no ultimate curse because he has taken it on himself. That, my friends, is amazing faith. Glorious faith. But it's the same faith that we possess here today. With God there is no ultimate evil. Evil doesn't rule and reign. It fits underneath his goodness. And same with Satan's accusation, though it might look like that your life is under a curse or that God is angry with you or making you pay for the things you've done. My friend, there is no ultimate accusation because Jesus was accused for you. And so there isn't any kind of ultimate accusation out there against you. It's been silenced. You might have questions as to, like, well, then what does that mean for Satan today? Well, it means a couple things. It means Satan doesn't work in the same way that he used to. Praise God. Satan's office has been changed. He is no longer up in heaven making accusations, my friends. He's only down here creating ruckus. And it's all, it's all okay. There's, he knows that there's a time ending. He knows he has a short lifespan. Can I read with you Revelation 12? I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. 
John sees this revelation one day, and it's almost prophetically now because of Christ, this reality that when Jesus died on the cross because of the blood of the Lamb, Satan has been thrown out of heaven. He's been thrown down. Well, where has he been thrown? He's been thrown down here. He's with us, which is good news. I know that sounds like bad, bad news, but it's actually good news. John makes, uh, Jesus makes mention of this in the Gospel of John right before his crucifixion. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. We know it to be the voice of God. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now this is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And, when, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. Because of Christ, Satan has been kicked out of heaven. His accusations against you no longer stand. He is no longer able to stand up there and tell, tell God all of the things that you've done or all the things that you've not done. Why? Because there's somebody else who stands there. Jesus, our great high priest, with the blood of his own covenant, comes before God and says, Righteous, son, daughter, forgiven. There's no other voice in heaven but Jesus' voice for you with his own blood pleading on your behalf. So I ask you, what other bad is out there? What other accusation is out there? It's been silenced. Because of Jesus' suffering and death, the accusing voice of Satan has been silenced forever. Oops, that's not it. Maybe. All right, forget it. I must have grabbed the wrong slides. Just hear that. Because of Jesus' suffering and death, the accusing voice of Satan has been silenced forever. Chris Ash, one of the commentators, I want to read a little bit of him before I jump to another quote real quick. He says, so as we read the story of Job, we think first and primarily of the greater story of Jesus who walked the way of Job for us, who plumbed the depths of Job's suffering for us and who was vindicated for us. Satan is still able to attack us. He spends what short life he has left to him uh, angrily doing that, like a hungry lion on the prowl. We must be realistic about this. Still, we have to endure. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. But if we are in Christ, Satan is no longer able to accuse us before God. He no longer shares that access. Isn't that beautiful? All the things that you feel, all the sin that you, you, I mean, you, you hear that voice of accusation. You hear that. You know who doesn't? God. He doesn't hear any of that stuff. He's trying to find the sin that you're so desperately trying to get rid of. He's like, I don't see any sin out there. I don't, I don't see it. First John, we know this. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
You have a better word for you in heaven that you'll you'll never hear down below. It's like you'll never you'll never never hear it from people how righteous, how clean, how forgiven you are. You'll just never hear that in our relationships here. But the one relationship that counts, the one relationship that we have to have, you won't find any of the bad stuff that we sweat. It's amazing. All right, I have to share Luther because he's one of my favorites. He writes this to a friend who's struggling with Satan's attacks. For whatever reason, Luther had a great knowledge of the presence of Satan, maybe even too much. Excellent Jerome, he writes. You ought to rejoice in this temptation of the devil because it is a certain sign that God is merciful to you. You say that the temptation is heavier than you can bear and that you fear it will so break you and beat you down as to drive you into despair and blasphemy. I know this wile of the devil. If he cannot break a person with his first attack, he tries by persevering to wear him out and weaken him until the person falls and confesses himself beaten. Whenever this temptation comes to you, avoid entering upon a disputation with the devil and not allow yourself to dwell on those deadly thoughts. For to do so is nothing short of yielding to the devil and letting him have his way. Try as hard as you can to despise those thoughts which you are induced by the devil. In this sort of temptation and struggle, contempt is the best and easiest method of winning over the devil. Laugh your adversary to scorn and ask him who it is with whom you are talking. When the devil throws your sins in your face and says that you deserve death and hell, say this, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. All of that is possible because of Jesus. And so I ask you, what's better? Life as a sufferer with that kind of God, and again, suffering might just shine a window into the majesty of his mercy that you might never have comprehended if your life was so perfect. What is better? Life, suffering, but God, or your perfect, whatever kind of miserable life you want, perfect, without him? The reality is that we have a God who even uses mercy or uses evil to highlight mercy. Job is an account of this. Jesus is an account of this. And my friend, because you are in Christ, you are an account of this. There is no ultimate bad. There is no ultimate accusation. Those things have been silenced because of the work of Jesus. And now the only thing you have is Christ himself. Unhinged. Unfiltered. This is for you. Let's pray. Redeemed us once for all
Come and he saves us all.